We should always want to hear more about Jesus, more from the word of truth. And specifically, we will hear more about Jesus tonight. Today, we're in the Old Testament as we continue our series on the truth about worship. And again, what is the, the purpose of this series? It is an emphasis on worship as one of the really the primary emphases in Scripture. It, it really is. It's throughout Scripture. We had it in our Scripture reading. We had it in our singing today, in our prayer. The Bible is clear that worship of God is important, very important, and should be primary. Um, in our lives and in our ministry as a, as a church together. One of God's central commands to his people, the very first two commandments of the Ten Commandments. You can't argue with the Ten Commandments, right? First two, worship and how to do it. And so the primary purpose of our worship is what then? It's to obey God and to please him in it. It's not to please ourselves. Again, the question should not be as we leave, what did you get out of the service, but what did God get out of the service? And then after that, if you want to talk about some things that you enjoyed or mentioned a couple of concerns to the pastor, that's okay. But make sure that we give God his proper reverence and place. Worship is the process of declaring by whatever means God ordains that the Lord is full of glory. And folks, worship is so very important to God that he has to deal severely when he's not worshiped in the way that he prescribes in his word. And we're going to see that today. We're going to see God's response to wrong worship. So turn to Exodus chapter 32. Two words that we're going to, again, need to be emphasized. You'll see in the passage this morning. One is our Old Testament word for worship, hawa. And again, that's to bow down, to worship. It's one of the basic Hebrew words for worship. Bowing down in an act of worship, reverence, or respect, or making oneself bow before one that is greater, one superior. And certainly that is the case with our Heavenly Father, with our Lord. We bow before him in worship. Another uh, more negative word that is very important in this as well is the word corrupted. Shahat, and it's to ruin, destroy, annihilate, or behave corruptly, humiliate oneself. Or we're going to see here, even more um, importantly, to literally bring oneself to ruin and the devastating effects of wrong worship. Well, I know I said to go to Exodus 32, but what I'm going to do is I'm actually before prayer here, I'm going to read from Exodus chapter 20, and remind us of the first two of the Ten Commandments that unfortunately in our passage today are broken. We're going to do that. I am reading, and again, uh, just a reminder from our church vote recently, I am going to be reading today from the ESV, but also making notes um, from the King James Version as well. I've been praying about this, and I really have a, a sense of freedom. I'm going to be looking through these versions that we've discussed as far as the freedom that we have in, in teaching from the pulpit and looking, trying to look at all of them as I have time and incorporate um, some of what I sense would be the best of, of the way that they've translated certain words and make, take the most advantage of 
this opportunity for these translations. But today it would mostly be the ESV with some notes taken from the King James Version. Exodus 20, verses 3 through 6, the first two commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Now, that was actually from the King James because it just felt like reading the Ten Commandments just sounds more like the Ten Commandments than the King James. God made it clear, though, what is his expectations for worship? That is that we worship him alone in the way that he has prescribed for us. We're going to see today what happens when we refuse to do that in the way that he has prescribed. Lord, we understand that worship is so very important. It is one of the most important things expressed in your word. And you take it very seriously, and therefore we must do the same. We understand that. And my goal is for continued understanding in this all-important topic. Thank you for the reminder to myself of the importance of this. In this service in particular, Lord, that everything that we do is honoring, it pleases you. That from our styles to our prayer to the singing, and my prayer is that each of us have a heart today. Our inner being that is prepared to please you, that is submitted to you in all things, that we may show purity and obedience in our worship today. Lord, we are going to look at a sobering passage and those that refuse to do this and the sobering consequences of that. Let it be our warning. Let us learn from this. And at the same time, rejoice in the mercy that you give sinners Knowledge, Lord, that even when we make a mistake in this all-important topic of worship, that you are ready to forgive and ready to show mercy. And you know that we are frail. And so we're grateful for that as well. So help us to be ready to learn much today from this passage in Exodus 32. And this we ask in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. God's response to wrong worship, and we're going to see in the first six verses of Exodus 32, wrong worship is direct disobedience against God. This is the passage where Moses leaves to spend time with the Lord, talking about the commandments that God is giving him. God has already given through Moses the Ten Commandments to his people. God has made it clear what he expects in worship, very clear no misunderstanding, and he's repeated it as we're going to see in a few minutes in Exodus 23. God did not say this just one time. He said what his expectations were multiple times, and yet the people disobey and worship God in a way that he has not prescribed, in a way that makes sense to them, and sometimes we lose this. We hear this golden calf, and just for 
to be fully clear on this, really the word has the idea of a young bull. If you think of why would somebody make a, a golden calf or an object that's supposed to represent power? We were driving to church today and saw over in the fields here down the road on the road on just down the road from the Wetzels, some little calves that were kind of stumbling around and they were playing and they looked very happy. And we got to watch those calves because we had a line of turkeys that wouldn't get out of the road. And we were stuck there for a few minutes. I'm watching these calves and they looked, they looked like they were having a great time, but I have to tell you, they didn't exude an image of power and majesty. And so really what this Hebrew word is, is a young bull. It is a bull in the primacy of its strength is the image that the um, that Aaron makes for the people. Now, still, when you think of the majesty and power of God, a young bull in the primacy of its strength is still falls far short of the power of God. And that's one of the reasons why this is so wrong. And so we have this decision to disobey God in direct disobedience of his clear commands. And we're going to see it was because in their wrong worship, it showed, first of all, discontent with God's way. Verse 1 of chapter 32, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. Remember, he's up with God. God is reviewing him, giving him the commandments in more detail. The people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, and really when it says together to, probably has the idea of not just coming up together with Aaron in unity, but against Aaron in a threatening way. They come before, remember, we have hundreds, um, perhaps thousands, right, of people here. Maybe, I don't think that we should look at this as all of the people of Israel. Later on, we'll see, we may, I think we're going to cover the second part of Exodus 32 next week. The Levites are faithful to Moses. So I don't know we should consider all the people, but a good majority of these people come up to Aaron and say to him, you better do it our way, right? And they said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. And as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Now, did these people have any legitimacy at all to their discontent, their impatience? What had God provided them? They had food that they needed. They had water that they needed. They had their commandments. They had security they needed. They had everything that they needed. God had provided for them and would continue to do so. Why are these people so bothered then and worked up? Well, most likely they're impatient. They've been taught, they, they, the promised land has been mentioned to them. Moses is away. And remember, Moses is still relatively new in his leadership to them. They're still getting used to him. And they've just recently heard the Ten Commandments and God's expectations. And they're still working through that in their minds. And Moses didn't give them a timetable about when he was coming down off that mountain. And they wait and they wait. Finally, they're just like, let's get on with this. You know, you, you can only wait by a mountain so long. We want to get to the promised land. Most likely, that's why they're discontent. Certainly not legitimate. They're not wait, willing to wait on Yahweh's timing, on their God's timing. And so they want Aaron to make gods that will lead them, that will go before us, 
and lead us. Lead us to the promised land and give us security. Protect us out here in the wilderness from our enemies. Uh, Moses isn't here. We haven't heard from this God, Yahweh, I am. And so let's make some gods who we can see, that we can have faith in. And this really was a test of their faith. Because um, in Egypt, they had the opportunity to look at multiple gods as the Egyptians worshipped multiple gods that had, were connected to different aspects of nature. They had the opportunity constantly to see visible representations of the God of Egypt. But with their God, the one true God, they couldn't see him. They could see his power. They could see that pillar of cloud and, and, and fire and, and all of these things. But he wasn't something that they could touch. And Moses, as the representative, wasn't there. And this was a test of faith that they have obviously failed. It was a great exercise for these people to worship God really without a visible representation of who he was. And again, think on that. For hundreds of years, right, they've been influenced by the worship of multiple deities in Egypt. Um, we, I, I saw a video a number of years ago that was very helpful of a group of Christians that were taking a tour through the land of Egypt. And this man was a Bible scholar, and he was explaining how each of the plagues were, um, were parallel or connected to a God that the Egyptians worshipped. And every one of those plagues, therefore, in each of those plagues, sometimes we miss this, God was debunking and um, destroying, showing the truth of these gods' lack of power, these Egyptians uh, worshipped the God of the Nile, the God of cattle, uh, the God of light, um, all of these things, the God of um, life for human beings. And they, they worshipped so many multitude of gods. In these plagues, God said, none of the, all of these gods are impotent, they're powerless. I am the one true God. And so even from that, the people should have understood it was a great opportunity for them to put full trust in God, in Yahweh, and they fail in this instant. They want those gods that they'd had before that they could look up, that they could look at and put their trust in. So Aaron, you better give us what we want. And we know, right? That's not a good formula for worship. It's a wrong formula for worship. We don't know where Moses is. What has become of them? Now, Aaron had a choice, didn't he? He had a choice whether to give in to the people. They're impatient. They want to turn back to what makes the most sense to them rather than what God had commanded them. They express doubt here in the human instrument of God's leadership in their lives. And they're demanding threateningly of Aaron that idols be made to represent their God. And what does Aaron do? Does he stand firm? Well, unfortunately, we know he does not. He gives in. And, of course, he's being threatened by, again, hundreds of people. He's a little intimidated, but he should have had more faith in God himself, in God's test. For him, he fails, and he collects the gold necessary for the idol to be made. Again, I want to emphasize this. We look at this idea of an idol made from a, of a young bull and think, why why would they even be tempted by that? I mean, out of all the things, Pastor Brock, that I'm tempted about to make an idol when I can't sense God's presence doesn't even come to mind. That doesn't make sense to me. 
But remember, folks, after those hundreds of years of what they've experienced, it, it may not make sense to us, but it makes really good sense to them. It, it practically um, is a way that they can visibly have faith. And it's the thing, it, it's, it's a way that they like to worship. And those principles can be applied today, too. We may have elements of worship that even make sense to us. Why wouldn't we do that? Why wouldn't we have this type of music? Why wouldn't we practically do this or that? And it's what I like. It's what I'm most comfortable with. This was certainly worship that the Israelites were most comfortable with. They don't want to be uncomfortable. And yet, God says that doesn't matter. Um, it's, he says, you need to worship the way that I have called you to worship. And that's the same thing, principle that he has for us today. Well, Aaron makes this, verse 2, Aaron said to them, take off your rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He is going to go ahead with this. And now they're going, not just showing discontent with God's way, but they're going to literally rebel against God's way. Aaron himself and the people. And Aaron said to them, take off the rings. Um, oh, verse four. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool, some sort of tool and made a golden calf. It seems like Aaron had some sort of talent for being able to do this. Or if he didn't, he learned real quick about how to do this sort of thing. And it when he was finished with this young bowl, this golden bowl, the people looked at it and they were satisfied. They were happy. And they all said together, this is something we can worship. These are your gods, O Israel, multiple gods, something they're used to worshiping. Ah, this is what we're used to. This gives us confidence and faith. These are what brought us up out of the land of Egypt. And Aaron saw this, verse 5. And he built an altar before it. Aaron sees this and it seems like he thinks to himself, you know what? This wasn't my best idea. This really wasn't a good thing. Maybe I can kind of doctor up this wrong worship and add in some of the things that God told us to do. And that's what he tries to do here then. Um, yes, here's your idol, but also we're going to have a feast tomorrow for the Lord. And he tries to add in things that God has told him to do. And we're going to see burnt offerings and peace offerings along with the sinful wrong way that God had said not to do. He's trying to mix the two in order to save himself, to make a more respectable appearance to the symbol of disobedience by building an altar next to it and declaring a feast to the Lord. And this Sounds great to the people as well. They give their approval. Yeah, you know what, Aaron? I think at this point, at first of all, it seems to me they were thinking, let's worship multiple gods. And Aaron redirects him and says, no, we really need to be worshiping the one true God. So we'll take our idol here and he'll be our representation of God. And we'll make this altar and we'll offer up sacrifices to our God. Remember, it's I am, it's Yahweh. And we'll have a feast that God has called us to do, and we'll make all this right before God. And the people say, that's a great idea. Yeah, we, we really should worship the God that brought us out of Egypt. And so this is our way of being able to do this. Again, it all made sense to them, but it was directly disobedient 
to what God had said. Let me just read again in Exodus 23. God had made it even clear after the commandments. He said, but if you careful, if you carefully obey his voice, this is Moses, and do all that I say, and then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to you the Amorites and the Hittites and the other enemies there, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless you, your bread, your water. I will take sickness away from you. These people should have known. There's no excuse here. It was what they're comfortable with. But God made it clear. And they are basically thumbing their nose at God in direct disobedience and saying, we don't care. He's not here. Let's go back to what we like. Folks, that is a dangerous place to be in. And so, verse 6, they rose up early the next day and they offered their burnt offerings. God had told them about these and given them instructions for this and brought peace offerings. These burnt offerings, by the way, remember, they were very, they were very important. They were atonement offerings that were supposed to be presented before the multitude as the ark of God was hidden from sight. They weren't supposed to be gazing upon a symbol of God directly in front of them, but in actuality, the ark of the Lord was supposed to be hidden away. And it was, again, it was an act of faith that they had to trust God that they were doing and that he was pleased, even though they couldn't see a visible representation of him. And they're disobeying him now with this all-important atonement offering. This offering provided relationship with Yahweh in dealing with sin. It was the most important offering that they gave, this atonement offering. But then the peace offerings also as well represented the ongoing blessings of, blessings of relationship with him. Two very important aspects of worship that God took very seriously. And there is both disobedience and now we see a lack of reverence in the worship that the people now participate in. And it says, and the people sat down, ESV says, to eat and drink, and rose up to play. That idea of rising up to play really has an idea and has the symbolism or the meaning in the Hebrew of an atmosphere of a party. Um, some translations um, try to or add a sense of immorality maybe involved with this. That could be the case, but really the Hebrew word doesn't specifically indicate that. But it does have the idea of wild, uncontrolled irreverency in a party-type atmosphere, certainly not a serious worship of God. The people are singing and dancing, we find out later, in a wild, irreverent manner that is not reflective at all, thinking about who their God is, and it's not honoring to God. They're out of control. There's no sobering reflection and thought about the power and majesty of their God. And even without that aspect of immorality, folks, we can understand that is a flagrant violation of how God wants us to worship. Remember, uh, we missed this last week, but Dr. Berg has recently talked about the aspect of self-control that we all need in our lives. This is 
a good example of a total lack of self-control in worshiping the one true God. There was a CCM uh, concert uh, singer and a CCM musician in the 90s that in the midst of concerts would get all the, the young people and the people there all riled up with uh, rock music and the wrong type of music. And then he would stop in the middle and say, now, see, look at what a good time we're having. This, we're just, we're having a party before God, celebrating God. And all those people that have a real problem with us, all those stick in the muds and, st and stingy people who don't like this kind of music, one day they're going to be awful surprised when they get to heaven and see the kind of party that we're holding and that they're not able to enjoy it the way that they should. Well, folks, all you'd have to do is say, why don't you talk to the children of Israel about that? Because they found out here that this type of atmosphere, folks, not that there won't be rejoicing in heaven. There will be incredible, amazing joy that's beyond our comprehension. There will we'll be, ha be happy beyond our wildest dreams. But there won't be this sense of partying, out of controlling, doing whatever the flesh wants type of atmosphere. That's where that man had this totally wrong. And it's not honoring worship in the sight of God. It's just not. You know, even conservative, we talked about contemporary Christian music, and I know that involves some broader evangelical ministries, but even folks in conservative fundamental churches can also get caught up in this. Even as some of our churches, we, they can be doing things, saying things, maybe even joking in such a way, maybe providing, I, I'm even careful, and maybe you might say, well, Pastor Brock, the Lord's continuing to help you work with that, but I'm even careful to be to not have too many jokes or try to have too much humor in the morning service, especially because I want to make sure that all that we do is reverent and holy before God. It's that important. And sometimes in even our church circles, there are things that are incorporated that are irreverent and we lose the atmosphere of focus and meditation on God and his holiness. And we have to be careful of that. In the broader church today, certainly we see this. It's often guilty of doing what Aaron did, mixing right and wrong elements of worship in an effect to please themselves. And yet somehow, yeah, we want to please God too. We want to kind of, really, they think they're placating God. We want to do what we want to do, but we want to make God happy too. That's what Aaron was trying to do. And we're going to see here in these next few verses, God is not pleased with that kind of worship. He's not pleased with a mix of personal styles that we like, but he only desires purity in worship. He doesn't want our creativity. Wrong worship, then, in the second part, 17 through four, 7 through 14, will bring a strong response from God, and he will discipline disobedient people. Look at verse 7. The Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. This is an important verse. I don't want you to think that God is somehow, sometimes we, we see this happen, uh, you know, between husbands and wives when one of the kids act up and there's the kind of joke, hopefully it doesn't happen in your home, where the husband says, or the wife says, well, that's your child that's acting up. You need to go deal with them. But when they do something right, they say, oh, that's my boy. I'm so proud of him, you know, trying to slough off or um, you know, um, 
try to basically acknowledge that it's the other person's problem when difficult things come up. That's not in any way what God is doing here when he says, the peop- your people whom you brought up, they're being disobedient, Moses, so they're your people now. No, what God is doing here is he is recognizing his calling of Moses as the nation's leader and is describing for him the wrong worship choices of the people. Moses is the one that God has called to deal with this. Now, God will has, gives Moses the full authority and power to deal with this, but it is Moses' responsibility, and God is reminding Moses of that. The people, it says here, are corrupting themselves. Remember we, we mentioned that verse or that word already? It can have the meaning of ruin, destroy, annihilate, behave corruptly, but really, folks, it really has the idea of this, is people are bringing themselves to ruin. They're self-destructing in the midst, right before our very eyes, in the fact that they're offering wrong worship to God. You know, it's a reminder to me, we really don't see wrong worship as serious as what God does. We may see this and say, really? Like self-destructing? Like it's that important? It really is. God says, when you offer up worship that I'm not pleased with, you literally cause yourself to, in a sense, self-destruct. You bring yourself to ruin. You will bring my punishment on you. And folks, that ought to sober every one of us to be careful then with the worship that we honor. And certainly as a church, because God will have to discipline. What have they done? Verse eight, they have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf or a young bull, right? And have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. They have deliberately, folks, broken the second commandment and probably the first one too. And so God is ready now to deal with this direct disobedience. Verse nine, the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. And behold, it is a stiff-necked people, not just rebellious, but this word here describes somebody that has purposely, consistently goes against authority. You don't want to be that person, folks. You don't want to be that person that God has to deal with because he will, and you won't like the effects of it. They are a stiff-necked people, and now here is the discipline. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I, make a make, I may make a great nation of you. He is calling for Moses to have a response here. But he's saying, Moses, I am ready. My wrath is hot. Think of that King James word again, wrath. And I am going to act on my wrath. Now, again, when we read this, it almost has a picture of of God saying to Moses, Moses, don't hold me back. Don't hold me back because I'm about ready. I can't stand it. I'm I'm losing control of my anger. and I'm going to really deal with them. And because of our sinful, um, corrupted understanding, that may come across that way. But in actuality, he is providing a test here for Moses and providing an opportunity for Moses to react. This would be totally appropriate for God 
in his righteous, holy judgment to deal with these people's purpose rebellion in this way. Let's not misunderstand, folks. His holy wrath against wrong worship is a totally appropriate response to this sinful act. But he's waiting for Moses to respond. Is Moses going to be committed to God's promised plan that he has promised to Moses, to Abraham, to Isaac, that he will from them create a nation and these people in his nation that will follow after him? Well, we're glad to see in verse 11, Moses does pass the test. And here's the amazing thing. In the midst of this severe um, opportunity or severe chance, excuse me, for discipline, in the midst of the really great evil that the people are performing here, we're still going to see that God is ready to show mercy, that God is ready to show love. And Moses passes the test. What is Moses' great concern here as we finish? Moses implored, pleaded with the Lord. He advocates, in effect, for the people of God, the Lord his God, and said, Oh, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? I don't believe that Moses is somehow conflicted about why God's so angry. I think he knows. God was clear with Moses. Moses remembers, and Moses is probably very angry too. Remember, we're going to see probably next week as he comes down the mountain and he actually sees what these people are doing. He takes those Ten Commandments and breaks them himself on the rocks below. He's angry too. But what he's saying here is, Lord, don't act out on your anger in a way that will bring this type of punishment to the people. You've you've spent all this time, and you have brought them out and shown them great things. And then he brings up something that's interesting. Verse 12, why should the Egyptians say with evil intent? The King James has the word mischief, but really that has the idea of um, evil intent, um, wicked intentions. Did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? It seems There was an expectation of many Egyptians that the Israelites, God was going to bring them out of captivity in order to take them away and eventually kill them because they were so unworthy or something like this. And Moses says, God, that's exactly what the Egyptians, they're not going to see your name honored in this. They're going to think their own corrupted thoughts of you have come true. So turn from your burning anger. Relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. Moses pleads with God to remember his promises. And again, don't think that God's up there thinking, oh, that's right, Moses. Uh, I'd forgotten about that in my anger. Thanks for reminding me. I'll, I'll calm down. No, God is going to be true to his promises, but he wants to hear from Moses what Moses just said. Did you catch that? What's Moses' ultimate concern? It's for the people, but his ultimate concern is for God's own name. He's saying, God, you swore by your own self, your own name. And my greatest concern is that you won't get the glory that you deserve if 
this takes place, Moses is primarily concerned with giving glory to God and worshiping God. The very things the people had forgotten were not a concern for them, is a concern for Moses. And Moses passes the test. Moses does have a concern for God's glory. He wants above all else for God to be honored and in God and what happens with the people for God to be honored and not mocked. And so God shows his willingness in the midst of his righteous, right anger and response. Verse 14, and the Lord relented, as King James says, repented. But remember, really the idea is relented. He does not do something that he has the opportunity or the right to do. And God really in this, in his sovereignty, this is what he planned to do the whole time, because this is right along the lines with his promises to Abraham and Isaac that he can't go against. And so in his sovereignty, he relents from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Folks, this is really, all this is a great emphasis to us. Do you understand that worship really is a big deal to God? If you don't understand that at this point, you've missed the whole point of this passage. It really is that big of a deal that literally when we won't worship him in the way that he prescribes, we are bringing self-destruction on ourselves. When we don't follow his rules and his principles for right worship, we are bringing ourselves to ruin. That's how important it is. Well, what do we do? We turn from our own ideas of worship. It's not ultimately what satisfies us, what makes the most sense to us, what we like the most. But we submit those things to the principles and commandments of God's word. The first two commandments are very clear. There's really, it's really hard to misunderstand what God is saying. Worship me alone. Don't make any image or representation of me and worship that. Just worship me. Even if you can't see me, trust that I'm here. Worship and honor me. And folks, when we do that and we plead for God's mercy when we mess up and make mistakes in this area, God still has mercy. We can be sobered by his judgment, can't we? It's awful. It's holy. It's right. But it's awful. It's severe at times. But remember, balance that, that when we turn to God and ask for forgiveness, his great mercy and grace and help is there for us to do right. Well, next week, we're going to see as we continue in this chapter that there are still consequences. Don't think that God relents and doesn't offer any consequences for this wrong worship. No, these folks are still faced with some severe consequences for their actions, but he's not going to destroy them because of his love and mercy for them. And Moses has passed the test. His ultimate desire is for God to be glorified. Are we going to pass the test as a church this morning? Is that our ultimate goal and desire? Individually, throughout this week, Are we going to pass the test that everything that we do ultimately pleases God before it pleases us? That's hard. We're going to have to ask for God's mercy and grace for that. And you know what? As we see here, he offers it to us and will give it to us. Lord, thank you for this reminder. You are truly an awesome, all-powerful God. And when we 
directly disobey you in willful rebellion, your judgment is terrible. And yet we're so thankful for your everlasting mercy and grace that you love us and that you don't always give us what we deserve. You have provided us with a savior and that when we put our faith and trust in him, in Jesus Christ, we can escape the final terrible consequences that sin rightly deserves and experience your grace and mercy. Lord, let everyone today within the sound of my voice be certain that they have put their faith in Jesus Christ, that they will experience ultimate mercy of not um, being of not facing eternal destruction in a place called hell, truly terrible, but righteous judgment. And then in your mercy, you offer Jesus righteousness for our sins, for our lack of righteousness. And we can be your children and be enabled to worship you the way that you have prescribed. Help us to do that in this church, in this service, and in our lives. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.